John 7.25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. One of the worst features of our intellectual age is the hot take. It asks someone to make declarations about issues that they've given little thought. Think out loud, it says, but act as though you can't be wrong. With subjects that really don't matter, like sports, it can be fun to hear hot takes. Few of them hold up well over times. I follow a Twitter account called Freezing Cold Takes that just reminds people of what they said a few months ago and how dumb that sounds now. The problem is that hot takes are applied to every area of life now. No matter how important or complex the issue, no matter how difficult and controversial, you've got to declare what you think about it now. Underprepared, ill-informed, unconsidered, none of that matters. Speak boldly. Hot takes is a modern term for a problem with ancient roots. 
People have long pretended to know more than they do, to sound certain when they shouldn't. Confident, bold ignorance has always put forth about all kinds of concerns and controversies and politics and, of course, religion. The intellectual arrogance of humanity is sadly ironic when you consider that God gave us these minds and logic and reason. He gave us these things, making us in his image. We possess these very faculties so that we're able to be the pinnacle of his creation. And instead, many use these same faculties to deny his lordship, his glory, and his very existence. If we want to speak truth, we've got to first think truth. We've got to know it. And this morning's passage illustrates how truth can and cannot be known. The Christian life shouldn't be a series of hot takes. Instead, we should live out St. Anselm's famous motto, faith-seeking understanding. Jesus is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, and the people don't know what to make of him. But that doesn't stop them from talking. Now, if they had listened to him, they would understand But who has time for that? And since they really haven't listened, they shouldn't know what to make of him, and they shouldn't pretend to. But everyone in this story has a hot take, don't they? Some feel strongly that he cannot be the Christ because he's from Galilee. Others, so impressed by the miracles, think that he is the political liberator they've been searching for. And the rumors... The rumors are that the the religious authorities want Jesus arrested. But here he is, free. That gets the conspiracy theory crowd rolling with their hot take. He must be the Messiah, because if he wasn't, the authorities would have arrested him already. So they must secretly know that he's the Christ. That's why he's still free. Everyone has a hot take, because everyone assumes they can understand on their own. Except... They're all wrong. And laughably, none of them simply ask Jesus to give them understanding. They don't for a moment consider that he might be the very one who could clear all of this confusion up. They never imagined that to know truth, you first needed to know Christ. Because they don't even imagine that truth is something that is given and taught not just possessed. The passage also alludes to another option, those who just wanted to be told what to think by the authorities. I don't have to think if the religious rulers will just tell me which position is okay. On the one hand, at least they understood that they didn't have understanding. On the other hand, they don't turn to God for that understanding because their primary goal is not truth. It's social and political acceptance. Just tell me what to think so that I don't get in trouble. Now, the conspiracy theorists are quickly dismissed by the crowds because the crowds have facts with a capital F. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This is a popular view in Israel at the time that nobody can figure out where it came from, but lots of people believed it. 
that when the Christ appeared, he would burst onto the scene as a relative unknown with mysterious origins. You can't find that in the scriptures anywhere, but we find lots of written evidence like this passage that says a lot of people believed this. The Bible, on the other hand, clearly teaches that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And it talks about people in the crowds who knew that. But from either perspective, both people are equally confident in declaring that Jesus is not the Messiah. Why? Everyone knows. Everyone knows that the Messiah would be an unknown. Or everyone knows that the Messiah would not be from Nazareth. The science is settled. That's where his parents are from. You see how this works? Instead of faith in God seeking understanding about his ways, the crowds start with their own understanding. And that won't ever lead to the truth of God. The passages that follow have more irony per square inch than any other section in John's gospel, both intentionally and unintentionally by the speaker. It starts with Jesus in verse 28. You know me, and you know where I come from. That is profoundly ironic, and Jesus intends it that way. That's right, he says. I can't be the Christ because you know me. You know where I come from. You just, one little thing, you don't know the one who sent me, which, by the way, is God the Father. They are confident Their hot take is that Jesus is a self-appointed prophet. They know him and where he comes from. They never for a moment seek to understand that he was sent by the Father. If we claim to have spiritual understanding apart from God, we will never actually know the truth. We have to seek understanding, and we have to seek it from God. Everything else is foolish, and when we say it out loud, we'll in hindsight have been foolishly ironic hot takes. Maybe we should start a Twitter account for our bold proclamations. They say, we know who you are, proclaimed boldly by people who haven't the foggiest idea who Jesus really is. Now, in light of Jesus' accusation that these people don't even know who God the Father is, much less him, verse 30 is to be expected. Arrest him. This guy is a problem. That tells us that not everyone felt that way. That there were some convinced by his miracles that he had to be the Christ. But look at that carefully in verse 31. They're not seeking understanding of who Jesus is through his words or through his truth, but through their own assessment of his miraculous power. That's their hot take. It feels closer to the truth, but it's still miles away. Well, who could do better miracles than this guy? The others, everyone else, just wants him arrested, the way the religious rulers do. And they're waiting to hear from the authorities regarding the official position on Jesus. But the religious rulers, of course, are waiting on the crowds to turn on Jesus so that they won't get in trouble when they issue a warrant for his arrest. It's truly the blind leading the blind. But don't overlook that little phrase in verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Pause for a moment to think about what that means. Jesus is surrounded by a massive, angry mob. Jesus' enemies are the most 
powerful men in this social and religious structure. And yet, he is not in the least bit of danger. There is nowhere safer to be than in the center of God's will. Now, starting in verse 32, our story goes into split screen, like a movie where you see two different scenes at once. On one side are the chief priests and the Pharisees who send the temple officers out to arrest Jesus. And on the other side is Jesus still teaching an oblivious crowd. The split screen image helps highlight the irony here because on the one side, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. Meanwhile, on the other side, the court officers are desperately searching for Jesus. And so as viewers, we think we know what Jesus is talking about. Our hot take is, yeah, they're coming to get him. Jesus better get out this teaching quick before he gets arrested. But spiritual understanding comes from God alone. And Jesus' point is not that he will shortly be arrested. All of this is taking place in October. By April, Jesus will hang on a cross and ascend to the glory of his Father. I will be with you a little longer is not measured in minutes, but in months. Because he says, I'm going to him who sent me and to a place that they cannot find or go. He's not talking about his arrest. He's talking about his death, which, as one pastor puts it, is not for Jesus the end, but the return to glory he had with the Father before the world began. And once Jesus reached that point, these others could not join him. That they will seek and not find him is sad irony. Interestingly, we read about it in our Old Testament reading this morning as well, in that prophecy of what would come because of Solomon and Israel's disobedience. That they will seek and not find him is the result of their disobedience. Jesus' own people will reject him and send him to the cross. But then, 40 years later, as they are facing national destruction in AD 70, the people of God, Israel, will cry out, desperately seeking their Messiah to come save them. But as that same pastor concludes, in the presence of the Father, there is no room for those who have refused to accept the Son. They've already rejected the Messiah, and he's not there to save them or their temple. This mocking of Jesus that comes next is glorious irony. Interpreting his words without spiritual understanding, their hot take is that Jesus, whose ministry has failed in Jerusalem, will now have to go out and minister in the boonies. Maybe those people will take him seriously. Perhaps he can salvage his ministry among the scattered Jews and the dispersion and the Gentiles and the hinterlands. How gloriously ironic. Because rejected by these Jews... The gospel of Jesus will go out from Jerusalem into the diaspora and even to the ends of the earth and will be received by Jew and Greek. In fact, the original audience of John's gospel is those very people out in the dispersion. His first readers were no doubt delighted that this mocking accusation would turn out to come true. That the gospel of Christ, even if not his earthly ministry, would reach out to where they were to save them. Those who mock are blind to their own spiritual blindness. 
They make pronouncements without any understanding that comes from God. It's a reminder that no matter how seriously we take ourselves, if we fail to seek understanding from God, our spiritual hot takes will turn us into spiritual punchlines. God alone can explain the meaning behind everything we see and hear. And Jesus does this himself in verses 37 to 39, in both word and deed. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was a big deal, the great day, the text says, the Septuagint calls it the finale. It's the end of this favorite feast, Tabernacles, but it's also the end of the entire cycle of feasts in the Jewish calendar. And one of the important repeated rituals at Tabernacles was when the priest would go out and draw water from the pool of Siloam and walk the water back amongst the people's back toward the altar where it would be offered and poured out. And as he carries this water from the pool, the people would go nuts. They would shout and sing and rejoice. They would recite Bible verses, scripture passages, everything they could think of that had biblical symbolism about water. Verses like Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore with joy shall you draw water from the well of salvation. And in the context of this happening, Jesus, drawing from all of the prophet's teaching about water, says, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John explains this to us, that he had said this about the Spirit. You see, Jesus is offering understanding to those who will seek it about the very ritual that is happening in front of them. This biblical imagery about water, it's about him pouring out his spirit on those who believe. Jesus is crying out to the crowd, all of this water points to me. And for John's readers in the first century and even us today, there's another level of spiritual understanding that's offered. You see, more than 500 years before this feast, The prophet Haggai sat very near where Jesus is sitting, nearly the same spot. And he urged the people to resume the work of rebuilding the temple, which they had abandoned. And through Haggai, God said this, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and I will shake the nations, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house With glory. Now, Haggai spoke those words on the 21st day of the seventh month, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So, in the same place, on the same day, where Haggai promised the desire of nations would come and fill the temple with glory, Jesus stands up in the temple and offers his spirit to all who would believe. Now, it's stunning. I didn't see that theory among all the hot takes we read. Instead, the people confidently bicker from among their own views, their own understanding. Political liberator, miracle worker, or fraud. Imagine what could have happened if they had asked Jesus for understanding rather than relying on their own. They wouldn't have believed, for no one comes unless the Father draws him. But they would have been a little less ignorant. 
Now, change our focus on the split screen. Return back to the religious rulers. The temple officers return empty-handed. Now, it should be noted that these officers are from the same Levitical class as the priests. They had to be to work this closely in the temple. And so even though they're security guards, they're trained in the scriptures. They're Levites, and they're also probably struggling with how to understand Jesus. And when they're questioned as to why they failed to arrest him, they speak the truth. No one ever spoke like this man. He doesn't speak as a student or as a teacher. He speaks as the one who authored all truth. He speaks full of truth and grace. He speaks as one who can give understanding. Why didn't they arrest him? They're not sure they could or should. And the religious rulers go nuts. Their intellectual arrogance has blinded them to the truth about Jesus. And so now they go on the attack against anyone they perceive as being sympathetic. Jesus is a deceiver. And these foolish officers have embarrassed themselves by being taken in by his scheme. The officers are not theological fools. They speak more truth than they know. But the religious rulers treat them that way. And then that, that uh, contempt goes out even more broadly. All the people who believe in Jesus are fools. None of us believe. None of the rulers believe. Doesn't that tell you something? They say this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now the point is broadly correct. If you don't know the law, you can't keep the law, and so you're under the law's judgment. But here it's not the people. It's the religious rulers who are so clearly lawbreakers with regards to Jesus. And Nicodemus ever so carefully points this out. Kids, this is worth taking note of because what Nicodemus does is both brave and smart. He has sympathy for Jesus and some hope that Jesus' words are true, though he's not a follower of Christ yet. But here, among his peers, he is vastly outnumbered by angry men who think way too highly of themselves. He wants to defend Jesus. He feels that urge, but he has to do it in a way that can work. If he just demands that they leave Jesus alone, he's not going to get anywhere. So instead, he stays very calm, and he raises a procedural question. These men just boasted that they are not ignorant lawbreakers like the people. And Nicodemus says, well, since we care about the law, shouldn't we remember that the laws require that the accused has a trial before they are judged? The rulers have declared Jesus guilty and deserving of death without ever hearing and learning what he does. And that itself is lawbreaking. We can tell that Nicodemus' defense is effective because the religious rulers have no argument against it. They are guilty. They know they are guilty of what Nicodemus has said, and they have no answer for his calm but very clever question. And what do you do when you're angry and you have no answer for the calm, accurate accusation that someone made against you? You attack them. 
Their argument was too sound for rebuttal, so you attacked the person who made the argument. And they reply, are you from Galilee too? On the playground as a kid, there was a bully who used to find the absolute smallest girls to pick on. And he would pinch their arms until their arms turned red and they cried in pain and then he would laugh. And finally, one of the better kids among us called him out on it. And he said, you're a coward. Only a coward attacks people who can't defend themselves. And the argument was sound. So what did the bully attack when he couldn't attack the argument? The one who made it. What is she? Your girlfriend? That's exactly what the religious rulers just did. Are you from Galilee too? Why else would you defend this fraud? But remember, Nicodemus' argument was never about Jesus. It was about the religious ruler's lack of process. It was about the right of the accused to a trial. But when you can't defend your actions, you attack your accuser. And they're not thinking. It's a hot take. They're just speaking without understanding. And when you do that, you're often going to be wrong. So John leaves one in here, just a little breadcrumb for us to notice that out of complete frustration and rage, these most learned men of the law say something insane. They're so enraged. They're so frustrated with the crowds and with Nicodemus. They say, no prophets come from Galilee. Boom, mic drop, we win. But there's a problem. And if they were thinking clearly, they wouldn't have said that. They wouldn't have told Nicodemus to search the scriptures to see what he finds. Because if Nicodemus had searched the scriptures to look for prophets from Galilee, he would have found Jonah and Hosea and probably Nahum. This is not about the truth. It's not about faith seeking understanding. It's about their feeling that things are spiraling out of their control. It's about the certainty of their authority slipping away under the ministry of Jesus. And what they do in response is not to seek wisdom from God. It's not to seek understanding from him. It's to put their own understanding in the driver's seat and mash the gas as hard as they can. And brothers and sisters, I will tell you from experience, and you no doubt have your own, this is the fastest imaginable way to error. If you want to get to errors and falsehood and lies as quickly as possible, put your own understanding in the driver's seat and mash the gas as hard as you can. What God says about spiritual understanding is just the opposite. He says it's folly to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those of us who are being saved. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. He says Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And that's why these men couldn't see wisdom, because they couldn't see Christ. He says that spiritual understanding does not come to the wise, the powerful, or the noble of this world. It comes to those who seek understanding from God. 
These religious rulers love to boast in themselves and their own wisdom. They ridicule everyone else as being beneath them because of what they know. And I will tell you this. It is not possible to boast in yourself and seek understanding that comes from God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption come to us in Christ. And our calling is to seek understanding so that as it is written, the one who boasts will boast in the Lord.